Five minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nahum Siegel. Welcome to a Tuesday. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program. Boy! 
Come here, 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 come here,
JM and the AM. Barry Weber with that great song. Rebind is the name of it. Good morning. It's Tuesday at JM and the AM. Good morning and welcome, everybody. I thank you for tuning in. Tell your friends and relatives around the world to listen in every single day between 6 and 9 a.m. Eastern Time and, of course, all day long to the Nahum Siegel Network. It's Tuesday and this November the 19th, day 21 in the month of Mar Cheshvan, the year 5780, Tough Shin Pei. Uh, Barry Weber with Rebound. You heard Yaakov Shweki's Netzach Yisrael. Bring the House Down. That's the title track from Avramo, Avram Fried. Matt Dub with AFO. Modani Wake Up Jam with wine with the Weinrib Brothers. Shmuley Unger had Mach Abracha and, of course, Regesh. Modani opening things up, and we say good morning. By the way, tomorrow, new music alert with Benny Friedman. He's out with a brand-new album, Benny Friedman in studio. We'll have that conversation for you, plus we'll Facebook Live it. Uh, around the world as well. So, you know, two global options for tomorrow's interview with Benny Friedman. NSN, you can hear it around the world. And uh, we'll Facebook Live as well, facebook.com slash Nahum Siegel Network. By the way, Elliot Weiselberg and the Yeshiva League Sports Update is coming up, 7 o'clock hour this morning. We'll have that for you. We have an OHEL update today. We'll do that with Robert Katz and Jay Kestenbaum, Dr. Jeffrey Gurak. He's out with a brand new book, Parkchester, A Bronx Tale of Race and Ethnicity. Dr. Gorak joins us, the great historian, Dr. Jeffrey Gorak, joins us in the 8 o'clock hour this morning. Uh, JM Rewind at 9 a.m. will concentrate on uh, Pittsburgh. And, um, yeah, lots of good stuff going on. Lots of wonderful things. By the way, our friends at ArtScroll have... Um, Chosen yet another special for uh, Nahum Siegel listeners. There's a brand new book that's about to be released and that you could pre-order by going to artscroll.com. It's called Kids Cooking with Chef Shiri. Kids Cooking with Chef Shiri. When you go to artscroll.com, the book is written by Ephraim Harari. It's easy recipes, fun facts, Torah tidbits, and more. Kids cooking with Chef Shiri. Make sure to go to artscroll.com, use the promo code radio, and enjoy your 15% off plus free shipping uh, when you use the promo code radio. So go to artscroll.com, promo code radio. The brand new book is called Kids Cooking with Chef Shiri. Looks like a great Hanukkah present, frankly. Uh, so you can check that out and uh, enjoy. Uh, so yesterday, big piece of news, Secretary of State Pompeo uh, had a big announcement. And I'm going to read to you from the New York Times the way they covered this. Because I think even they may have gotten it right this time. <laughs> the Trump administration declared on Monday that the U.S. does not consider Israeli settlements in the West Bank a violation of international law reversing four decades of American policy and removing what has been an important barrier to annexation of Palestinian territory. The announcement by Secretary of State Pompeo was the latest political gift from the Trump administration to Prime Minister Netanyahu, who has vowed in two elections this year to push for the annexation of the West Bank. His chief opponent, Benny Gantz, has until Wednesday night to gather a majority in Israel's parliament where he will relinquish his chance to form a new government raising the prospect of a third round of elections. The U.S. has in the past described the settlements as illegitimate and Palestinians have demanded the land for a future state, a goal that's been backed by the U.N., 
European governments and American allies across the Middle East. But President Trump has been persistent in changing U.S. policy on Israel and the Palestinian territories, moves aimed at bolstering political support for Mr. Netanyahu, who has failed to form a government after two rounds of elections with razor-thin outcomes. Monday's decision reversed a 1978 legal opinion by the State Department concluding that the settlements were inconsistent with international law. Pompeo said the ruling, quote, has not advanced the cause of peace. We've recognized the reality on the ground, Pompeo told reporters at the State Department. By the way, President Reagan, parenthetically, according to the Times, also told reporters shortly after taking office in 1981 that he did not believe the settlements were illegal, but called new Israeli communities in Palestinian territory unnecessarily provocative. The settlements have been a main sticking point in peace negotiations that failed to find a solution for generations. They're home to Israelis and territory that Palestinians have fought to control, and their presence makes negotiations for a two-state solution all the more difficult. The two-state solution has been a primary focus of past peace plans, calling for a separate state for Palestinians. Netanyahu praised the decision, said it reflected historical truth that the Jewish people are not foreign colonialists, colonialists in Judea and Samaria, a term for the West Bank. He said Israeli courts are better suited to decide the legality of the settlements, not biased international forums that pay no attention to history or facts. Gans, a former army chief and centrist candidate who has the support of the Israeli left and some Arab lawmakers, politely welcomed the announcement but said that the, said that the fate of West Bank settlement should be determined by agreements that meet security requirements and that can promote peace. That is the uh, New York Times. Um... That is the New York Times assessment of Pompeo's announcement yesterday. I didn't even realize this. According to the article, within hours of the announcement, the State Department issued a travel alert to Americans planning to visit Jerusalem, the West Bank, or Gaza. Those opposed to the Secretary of State's announcement may target U.S. government facilities, interests, and citizens, the department said on Twitter. Uh, The timing of Pompeo's announcement is almost certain to bolster Netanyahu's political fortunes Should Israel be headed to a third round of elections, he denied that the decision was tied to Israel's political stalemate, saying we conducted our review and this was the appropriate time to move forward. So it seems that um, till tomorrow night, that is the the deadline. Tomorrow night uh, is the deadline for the new government being formed and uh, I guess... Everybody is curious to see what happens over the next 36 hours or so. Will there be a formation of an Israeli government or not? Should be very interesting. More coming up. You're listening to a Tuesday morning edition Yeshiva League Sports Update in the 7 o'clock hour and much, much more if you keep it here at JM in the AM.
שור מלך, בית הספר שם, ואי ואי, בשור מלך, בית הספר שם, כולנו יחד, תחת שבטי ישראל, אנחנו נהיה עם ישראל, פקוד אחד, יחד שבטי ישראל, עכשיו אחדות בים Show what's going on, who's like 
JM in the AM, that's uh, Duvi Shapiro with um, uh, that selection called Lech Al Zeh, rather. Lech Al here at uh, JM in the AM. Before that, you heard the um, Bishat Tova selection from Ohad, Yachad from Barry Weber. Yossi Green had his Kabzi off of Yiddish Nachas. Nigun Stiebel, that was Sandy Shmueli, and Benny Elbaz opened up the set with Hine Matov here at JM. In the AM, it's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world, the web, and NahumSiegel.com, on the NahumSiegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. It's Tuesday on this November the 19th, 21st day in the month of Mar Cheshvan. you got the Galei Tzal, Israel Army Radio in the background. 43 degrees, partly cloudy, and a high of 54. Cloudy tonight, low 41, and tomorrow morning clouds, afternoon sun, and a high of 49 degrees. Yushalayim right now at 61. We're at 43 here in New York City as we say good morning at JM and the AM. Yeshiva League Sports Update coming up with Elliot Weiselberg. I remind you, you could sponsor all or part of a JM and the AM broadcast. Go to fjbunity.org and make our year-end fundraiser a success. fjbunity.org and sponsor a segment of our NSN programming. And to do it in memory of somebody, in honor of somebody, wherever the case may be, and keep us going here. FJBUnity.org, FJBUnity.org, and we thank you. Feel free to comment on the app. Go to the NSN, Nahum Single Network app for Android and iPhone, and comment away. We love hearing from you through the app and through every method out there. Galitzal in the background, Galitzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast for a Tuesday follows next. We say Bokerto from Jam in the AM. גליצל מירושלים השעה שתיים, שלום רב, כאן רני אבנאי עם מה שקורה עכשיו. יממה לפקיעת המנדט, ראש הממשלה נתניהו ויושב ראש כחול לבן גנץ ייפגשו הלילה, כתבנו הפוליטי מיכאל האוזרטוב. לבקשתו של ראש הממשלה, הלילה בשעה עשר ייפגשו גנץ ונתניהו בלשכת ראש הממשלה בירושלים. הפעם האחרונה שהשניים ישבו לפגישת משא ומתן התקיימה לפני כשלושה שבועות עם תחילת המנדט של גנץ. המנדט הסתיים בחצות הליל שבין יום רביעי ליום חמישי. הירי בסלומון טקה, הקצין שירה למוות בצעיר בקריית חיים, יועמד לדין באשמת גרימת מוות ברשלנות. מדווח כתבנו לענייני משפט יובל הראל. בהחלטת המחלקה לחקירות שוטרים נכתב כי השוטר ירה בניגוד לפקודות המשטרה לעבר משטח קשיח שעלול להחזיר נתזים. הקצין יואשם בכפוף לשימוע בגרימת מוות ברשלנות, עבירה שעונשה עד שלוש שנות מאסר. בעקבות כך שוקלים במשפחת טקה לעתור לבג"ץ נגד כתב האישום המקל בעיניהם. לחברת הכנסת פנינה תמנו שטה מכחול לבן, טענה אצל אמיר איבגי, יש משבר אמון גדול בין יוצאי אתיופיה למחלקה לחקירות שוטרים. המשבר אמון הרי הוא לא על, על קרקע ריקה, זה על קרקע פוריה. צבר האירועים שיוצאי אתיופיה מצאו את מותם לאחר שהם אה, היו בחיכוך עם שוטרים והגיע למצב שאף תיק בסופו של דבר לא נחקר. כולם זה תיקים שמח"ש בחרה לסגור. יאיר נדשי, עורך דינו של הקצין היורה, הגיב על ההחלטה. הוא שוחח עם כתבנו קובי מנדל. כמו רבים בציבור, חש מרשי שאלמלא המחאה הציבורית האלימה ששטפה את הארץ, לא היו בוחרים להעמידו לדין. במהלך התקופה שחלפה מיום האירוע, חזינו במחאה ציבורית אלימה, תוך שמרשי ומשפחתו נאלצו להסתתר מחשש לפגיעה בחייהם. בנסיבות המקרה, אף אדם סביר לא יכול היה לצפות את התוצאות. אנו סבורים כי אין מקום להעמדת מרשי לדין. 
במוסקבה מאשימים החלטת וושינגטון להכיר בהתנחלויות כחוקיות מסכנת את יישוב הסכסוך הישראלי-פלסטיני. כתבת חדשות החוץ, עמית חדד. במשרד החוץ של רוסיה מתחו ביקורת על החלטת ארצות הברית להכיר בהתנחלויות ביהודה ושומרון כחוקיות. הצהרה זו מערערת את התשתית ליישוב הסכסוך בין ישראל לפלסטינים ואת המזרח התיכון כולו האשימו במוסקבה. מוקדם יותר היום ביקר ראש הממשלה נתניהו בגוש עציון שם הודה לממשל האמריקני באומרו החלטת נשיא ארצות הברית דונלד טראמפ היא תיקון עוול היסטורי והישג לדורות. תושב אופקים אושפז במצב אנוש בבית החולים סורוקה בבאר שבע שהוא סובל מהרעלת אלכוהול. המשטרה פתחה בחקירה וקוראת לציבור שלא לקנות אלכוהול לא מוכר במקום שאינו מוסדר. החשב הכללי רוני חזקיהו מתריע מפני השבתה של משרדי הממשלה בשנה הבאה כתוצאה מחריגה בהוצאות. כתבנו לענייני כלכלה ניתאי ענבי שמע אותו בוועדת הכספים. אם אנחנו נטמון את ראשנו בחורף, ואנחנו ניכנס ל-2020, ייווצר מצב שאני לא אוכל לאפשר למשרדים לבצע הוצאות, והמשק הזה כולו יעמוד. כל פעולה שישנה במסגרת החוק, במסגרת הזהירות, במסגרת האחריות, היא מבוצעת והיא מומלצת לכולם כדי שניכנס ל-2020 במצב שנוכל לאפשר ולמנוע את מצב של השבתות המשרדים. ומזג האוויר לסיום, רוחות מזרחיות חזקות תמשיך לנשבנה ברחבי הארץ ובעיקר בערים, הן יהיו חזקות מאוד. אלה החדשות שעורך רועי ולד.
of all kings From the bottom of your heart At the top of your lungs Shiru lo shir chadash A brand new song Shiru lo shir chadash Everybody sing along Asa shiru tashiru
J.M. and the A.M. Tuesday. Uh, Yeshiva League Sports update in a minute. Hang on, everybody. Uh, Kaf al Kaf, that was Lipa here at J.M. and the A.M. Before that, brand new Benny Friedman, a song called Tashiru. And uh, tomorrow, here, live in studio, in a broadcast that will be heard around the world, and in a Facebook Live uh, presentation that will be shown around the world, Benny Friedman will be here in our studio at JM in the AM. That's right. AJA Carpool number 255 is out there with a bonus listening day, as they call it, on their way to davening and donuts with the second grade. Thank you, listener. Daniel, spread the word in all the southern cities of the United States that the best way to wake up is with us right here at JM in the AM. Don't forget to support our Amazing radio broadcast. Go to fjbunity.org, fjbunity.org, and you could sponsor part or all of a JMM broadcast. Don't forget our friends at Art Scroll continue to offer great discounts for us, those of us who are listeners of uh, the Nahum Siegel Network. Kids Cooking with Chef Shiri is uh, literally being released as we speak. Kids Cooking with Chef Shiri, written by Ephraim Harari. Check it out at artscroll.com. Kids Cooking with Chef Shiri. Uh, go to artscroll.com. When you use the promo code radio, use the promo code radio, you save 15% and you get free shipping. Use the promo code radio. Do that when you visit artscroll.com. Elliot Weiselberg has our Yeshiva League Sports Update Tuesdays, 7.20 Eastern Time. And today, thank goodness, is no exception. <laughs> <laughs> Elliot Weiselberg with the uh, Yeshiva League sports update. Here he is at JM in the AM. Thanks, Nachum. On this edition of the Tuesday morning JM in the AM sports update, the temperature may be dropping outside, but in varsity basketball, you just can't beat the heat. That and much, much more straight ahead. Good morning. I'm Elliot Weiselberg. The Hill Varsity Basketball Heat continue their hot start, taking two wins this past week. The Mag and David preseason finalists and Memphis Cooper Tournament semifinalists are undefeated so far, improving to 3-0 on the early season. Seniors Zach Citrin and Joe Zakaria broke the 20-point mark against SAR this past week, scoring 22 and 21 respectively in a 69-57 win. The Heat would take win number three this past Sunday, knocking off Hank 49-36. In other Heat news, the defending champion Heschel Heat traveled to Frisch last night and knocked off the nation's number one ranked Cougars 68-64 in overtime. Both teams came into the contest undefeated, with the loss now knocking Frisch down to 2-1. 
Over in the east, Hafter earns a split on the week, knocking off North Shore by 20 after falling to Mag and David. In boys' JV basketball, the top of the East going into last night's games was an all-Brooklyn affair, with Mag and David, Flatbush, and YDE a combined 8-0. That is no longer the case as the Warriors fell to DRS 52-42. Prior to last night, Mag and David was at 3-0 after defeating Hafter on Wednesday night, while YDE knocked off Hank 40-36 to remain perfect at 2-0, along with Flatbush at 2-0. Shari Tora looked to put a dent into Flatbush's record last night when the two met up. Out West, Frisch opened up its season with a dominating win over Kushner, and the Idea School picked up its first Yeshiva League win, dropping Westchester 36-30. In our first look at girls' varsity basketball this year, the Hafter Hawks have jumped out ahead of the league with a 4-0 record in the East going into last night's contest with North Shore. Hafter seems to have found a magical number, 51, as three of its four victories have seen the Hawks score 51 points, including Saturday night's 51-27 win over Hank. Out West, the usual trio of Frisch, SAR, and Maya Note are all 3-0, but with six games ahead for the three, the race to the top of the division should make for an entertaining winter. Moving over to hockey, where the SAR Sting remained perfect, but not without a scare. The TABC Storm held a 5-3 lead three minutes into the third period, but the Sting would score three straight, with the game-winner coming from senior Yamin Semmer with 13 seconds left in the contest. The win puts SAR at 4-0 as it prepares itself for a contest with Kushner later on this week. The Cobras came up short again in their home-and-home contest with Frisch, losing 3-2 in the rink in Kushner. But the close contests with the consensus top team in the league are definitely encouraging to the Cobra season prospects. In other news, Rombaum rebounds from getting shut out against DRS 4-0 with a 2-1 win over Hafter to move to 4-1. Senior Zeke Rothbord notched the game-winner in that contest. Finally, in boys' JV hockey, JEC notches their first win on the season, upending Ramaz in overtime 4-3. And Flatbush becomes the first team to go over the halfway mark of the season, albeit in a losing effort, falling 7-1 to Kushner with their record now at 3-3 on the year. And that was your Tuesday morning JM in the AM Sports Update. I'm Elliot Weiselberg.
Zusha and uh, Matt Dub and company with that song, Baruch Hashem, here at JM in the AM. Tuesday morning on this November the 19th, the 21st of Mar Cheshvan. Guess what? Benny Friedman tomorrow morning here at JM in the AM. We'll Facebook Live it. We'll have it for you around the world. You'll be able to hear our conversation about his brand new album again. Um, tomorrow, Benny Friedman live in studio right here at JM in the AM. Coming up later on in the 8 o'clock hour, Dr. Jeffrey Gurak, one of the great historians when it comes to modern Jewish history, is going to join us with a brand new book about Parkchester, a Bronx tale of race and ethnicity. He'll join us at about 8.15 this morning here at JM in the AM. He speaks at Stern College tomorrow night. Uh, so Jeffrey Gurak with, uh, or Dr. Jeffrey Gurak, I should say, um, coming up in the 8 o'clock hour this morning right here at JM in the AM. JM Rewind today, starting at 9 o'clock, is going to concentrate on our trip to Pittsburgh from last week when we went for the first yard site of the victims in the uh, Pittsburgh massacre. We have a whole set of uh, interesting interviews. If you missed anything from last week's Wednesday show when we broadcasted from the JCC in Greater Pittsburgh, we'll have it all for you between 9 and 10 this morning right after JM in the AM. Our friends at Nefesh Benefesh present an Aliyah workshop for retirees and empty nesters beginning at 11 a.m. this morning at the Executive Office Center on 186th Street in Fresh Meadows, Queens. That goes until 6.30 uh, this evening. For information, just go to the website, nbn.org.il, nbn.org.il. The Next Israel Networking Event, next meaning N-E-X-T, all capital letters, not just the next one. For young professionals, it's an evening of networking in New York City, which takes place this coming Thursday night starting at 7 p.m. at Splash Space on West 26th Street in New York. Information about that, again, nbn.org.il, nbn.org.il. And remember, Nefesh Benefesh will be at the OU Community Fair and Job Relocation Fair this coming Sunday uh, between noon and 6 at the Metropolitan Pavilion on West 18th Street in New York City. It's a major event that the OU is sponsoring with 57 communities from North America and six communities from Israel being part of it. Information, you can go to ou.org. Uh, and, of course, you can check out the Nefesh Benefesh website for the specifics regarding the um, regarding the um, uh, six communities that are coming in to be represented this coming Sunday. Uh, tonight is the Met Council Dinner, Met Council on Jewish Poverty, honoring Rabbi Lukstein, Mazal Tov to Rabbi Lukstein, Mazal Tov to everybody in the Gibber family at Debel Food Products. They are being honored as well. It's happening tonight starting at 6.30 at Gustavino's. We are looking forward to seeing everybody there uh, tonight for that big event. It is Shabbat Chayei Sarah this coming Shabbos. Those of you who are leaving on Wednesday or Thursday this week to spend Shabbat in Hebron, enjoy the Hebron Fund VIP program, uh, which gives you uh, access to uh, accommodations, meals, etc. for this coming Shabbos. is available if you go to hebronfund.org, hebronfund.org for information. Joey Newcomb is at the New Springville Jewish Center. He was here yesterday to discuss his music and the early part of his career. And he'll be at the New Springville Jewish Center with his band this coming Saturday night. If you're in Staten Island, uh, Brooklyn, Jersey, anywhere, come on out to Staten Island and enjoy his performance beginning at 8 p.m. Information dial 718-983-8063, 718-983-8063. And if you missed uh, any of our conversation yesterday, head to the archives at NahumSiegel.com or on the NSN app, and you will enjoy his presentation from yesterday. Remember, you can sponsor part or all of a JMAM broadcast in honor of someone, in memory of someone, etc., etc., to keep our amazing work going here at JMAM and the Nahum Siegel Network. Go to fjbunity.org, fjbunity.org for information on that. Again, that's fjbunity.org.
Org. Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, Zechonishmas Harav Zevin Biosivalevi and Zechonishmas Esther Basar Biosivalevi. Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with morning chizuk. Good morning. We learn in Medrash Bracious Rabba, Yesh Shuholech Eitzel Zivugo. There are some people that need to seek out and go to find the matrimonial match. Yesh Shezivugo Boetzlo. And there are some people who their zivu comes straight to them. Yitzchak, zivugo bo etzlo. By Yitzchak, it was that his zivig, his shidduch came straight to him. Like it says, vayar v'nei gemalim boim. It says he saw that the camels were coming close to Eliezer. Yaakov, on the other hand, holach etzel zivugo. He had to go out to seek his zivug, his match. As it says, Vayetze Yaakov, that Yaakov went out. The Rosh Yeshiva of the Chabina Yeshiva, Rebaruch Shimon Shneorson, said a very interesting idea concerning the difference. We know that Zivugim are from Shemayim, that every matrimonial match comes from heaven. Harboim Yom, 40 days before Yitzira Savlad, before the embryo is formed, Machrizim, they call out from Shemayim, Basploni Leploni, the daughter of so-and-so will marry so-and-so. So what is the difference if a person goes to their zivug or their zivug comes to them? Chazal tell us that Yitzchak Avinu, the fact that the Shidduch came straight to him, it's interesting because the entire Parsha is Osek, is dealing with the life of Yitzchak Avinu. He is the one that Hashem helped. He is the one that he was being somewhat interrupted in his studies by Yishmuel. Hashem had that Yishmuel was sent out of his house. Yitzchak was the one that it says, Tochin Libam, that Yitzchak Avinu was the one that was able to have the direct Siyat Dishmaya or heavenly assistance, that all went well. Yitzchok Avinu, he was the one that did not have to go out of Eretz Yisrael. However, Yaakov Avinu was different. Yaakov Avinu had a lot of difficulties. He had a brother, Esav, from the youngest time, even inside of his mother. Esav wanted to go one place, and Yaakov Avinu wanted to go to the base Madrash. As they grew up, there was a stark contrast between Esav and Yaakov. Esav fought with Yaakov. And then Yaakov had to steal the Bechaira, the birthright, away from Esav. And it was against his nature because Yaakov was a person that was completely true. Titain Emes Yaakov. Later, Yaakov Avinu had to run. He was afraid for his life. Then Yaakov Avinu had to fight with the Sarah Shalesov. He fought with the angel the entire night. We see that it was difficult for him. So what is going on here? Why did he have to go out to seek the Shidduch? And by Yitzchok it came to him. What we learn is that Shabina Rosh Hashiva tells us, this is the way that a person should understand. If they have challenges in life, it was already that Yaakov Avinu has paved the way, has sought out a derech in which a person can overcome obstacles and challenges in life. Sometimes 
The shidduch comes right to an individual. It's easy, painless, seamless. And then sometimes it's the opposite. A person has to go through challenges. They go through one parsha and then they go to another parsha. It's not easy for them. At the end result, Bez Hashem, they should find what they're looking for. But regardless of what path a person is on, they should gain great strength from the Avos HaKtoshim, from the Imahos, from all of those that came before us, that they were able to travel down the path, whether it's the path that is the easy way or the path of challenge. And Bez Hashem, at the end, be able to achieve and accomplish all that they want in this earthly world. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser bringing you Morning Chizik. Have a nice day.
JM in the AM with Arye Kunstler. It's called Modani Tuesday here at JM in the AM. As we get set for the big Ohel Gala this coming Sunday night, those of you who have never been to an Ohel dinner, an Ohel Gala, you know, we uh, always say, we say this every year, it is uh, among the most inspiring, and I'm talking about like the top two or three, among the most inspiring dinners of the entire year. And we encourage those of you who have never been to one to certainly come and enjoy and learn a lot about Ohel and hopefully become a big supporter of Ohel. In addition to that, those of you who've been there before and know what type of impact Ohel makes in our community, you should be at the Ohel 50th Annual Gala. It's a big milestone, the 50th Annual Gala, which has some great honorees, including the Meridian Capital Group. They're the guests of honor. The Leadership Awardees, Susan and David Mandel. The Nadiv Lave Awardees, Tippy and Stuart Nussbaum. The Camp Cayley Family of the Year, Judith Goldberg Ness and Dr. Seth Ness. And the Apple Bank is uh, being honored with the uh, Harvey Alava Shalom and Gloria Cayley Community Impact Award. Steve Bush, President and CEO, will be accepting on behalf of Apple Bank. We have in our studio one of the co-presidents of uh, OHEL, who no doubt is very, very busy, and we're glad he was able to stop by here on this uh, Tuesday before the dinner to discuss what's happening this Sunday. Jay Kestenbaum is here. Jay, good morning to you. Good morning, Nachum. How are you? Baruch Hashem. Great to have you here. And you are accompanied by Robert Katz, who, of course, is Chief Development Officer at OHEL. Nice, Rob- to, nice to meet you, Nachum. Nice to, see, nice to meet you and see <laughs> you, sir. And welcome to JM in the AM. I asked you off the air a few minutes ago how the dinner is doing, and you had a very enthusiastic response. Tell me about how the community is responding to the 50th annual gala. Well, we don't want to give too much detail before, but this is definitely going to be a record dinner. Wow, thank um, God. The fundraising is uh, absolutely amazing. We're, we're getting tremendous donations, um, and we have a tremendous program, very Sorry. different program from prior years. Um, it's the 50th anniversary. We're doing something completely different. Um, I don't want to tell too much since uh, we won't, don't want people sitting home and hearing about it. We want people coming. But it's a very, very different uh, presentation, uh, a formal production um, company has been hired to do something really different, really to catapult OHEL into the next 50-year period. It will not look like a traditional dinner, and it will not behave like a traditional dinner, correct? Right. Roberts described some of us for us and our listeners here over the last uh, a couple of weeks. Now, you've actually had an opportunity to see the preview of this, or at least a good chunk of the preview of what's going to be happening on Sunday, and that made you only more enthusiastic about Sunday night. Correct, correct. This is something that's going to really make it clear to people that we are poised and OL is ready for the next 50-year period. Um, not that the past is not great. The right. past is incredible for what's been accomplished the last 50 years, but we're preparing for a whole new generation and uh, a whole new marketplace of uh, people who are looking for different things and different pizzazz at a, at a gala, and this will definitely make their uh, wishes come true. Jay Kestenbaum is here, Robert Katz as well. Um, it is. It is, and look, you've seen a lot about Jewish organizational life during your professional life. Um, it is rare that uh, 50 years or whatever the official anniversary, I know it's 50th annual gala, but whatever the official anniversary is for OL, it's rare. Oh, is it 50 years? It is rare that an organization can remain as strong and as committed to their cause and continue to grow 50 years later. You've seen plenty sort of, you know, mosey on by the wayside and either, you know, completely fade away or, or just be a shell 
of their prior existence. They hit a peak at some point and, you know, and it went downhill from there. We always somewhat jokingly, but, but, but really seriously always point out how OHEL stays in the number one position in the services that it offers. And it's a very big challenge to stay there. And I guess with this 50th annual gala attitude, as you described it, you understand with all the changes going on in this world and all the different things that people are demanding in our community, very different than, than many of them over the last 50 years, you have to adjust with that and you have to you know, make those adjustments and move forward. I don't think every organization or heads of organizations get that. That's correct, Nachum. So um, OHEL is very much led by the lay leadership. Um, typical board meetings have 26 to 30 people coming, which, which is, is very, very unusual. Yeah. Um, it's it's actually startling because when you're there, you, you say, how does everyone else find the time? Um, uh, OHEL is not stagnant. The world changes. There are many organizations, as uh, you go to dinners every night and, uh, and all week, uh, many organizations find a niche and stick in that niche. Um, OHEL's niche is to serve the Jewish community. The times change, the world changed. Um, Foster care was a very, very major concern right. years ago. Um, it still is. It's not that it, 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 is, it is not serving foster care, very largely serving foster care, but the world has changed. We've had a whole element of abuse and trauma and services that are needed in so many different areas. And um, OHEL is not a stagnant organization. It's helping the Jewish community wherever the Jewish community has needs. And the lay leadership are the are the group that sit there in a the meeting and say, "What about this? Or what about that? What what other services can we provide?" With everyone knows someone who needs help. It doesn't mean it's right. severe help for every person, but everyone knows a family that's been touched by one of the things that OL serves, and it keeps changing for that. How many years are you going to board meetings? Uh, twenty over twenty five years. So twenty five years ago, you sat there, and yes. frankly, likely were saddened or. You know, may have gotten down with hearing the problems that your brothers and sisters in the community are having. Today, it must be so much more than that. It's, uh, many of us can't even believe the things that need to be addressed in order to help individuals and families in our community. So it just, you know, it, it, it has piled on. It has just gotten larger and, and, and so much more in terms of the uh, different situations that your uh, organization is serving. Correct. And, and remember, you go back only a few years ago and no one heard about abuse right. or trauma. Good trauma example. was an element, right. but people just dealt with it. They, they didn't serve the communities that are going through it. And from flying out groups to California to deal with people who have gone through the fires right. to all types of situations uh, to serving a Camp Cayley type of need where we, we come up with a concept that to integrate special and typical kids together to have a summer together and really together in the same bunks and the same food and right. the same activities. Uh, that is something that years ago was not considered or people didn't deal with. And nowadays we have anxiety. The number one problem now is, is the anxiety that we all know occurs. And even if we don't admit to it, even as adults, uh, we're sitting there and you, look at, you go to a restaurant and you look around the tables and there's no two people talking to each other. Everyone is looking down on their phones <laughs> until the food comes. Then they eat quickly and they dash off to some other problem. Right. And the anxiety levels that are happening in, in the world are tremendous. You know, it, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt, but a, a perfect example of what Jay's describing about how OHEL has um, moved along with the times and won't remain stagnant. One of the more veteran social workers that we have, one of our directors on staff, 
was explaining to me that when it comes to children and trauma, you know, we're used to saying to our kids, what's wrong with you? She, she used those words, and right. we've all used those words. Yeah. What's, what's wrong with Parents you? Parents have always used those words. <laughs> what's wrong with you? Right. <laughs> Teachers, what's... Now, the terminology that they try to use is, what happened to you? All right. Tell what me, are you going through? What are you going through? Tell me what's affecting you. Mm-hmm. Makes a major difference. It's a profound difference in the way you relate to a child, and that you, oh, oh, the way you have to re- relate to a child these days. Jay Kestenbaum and Robert Katz are here. You mentioned California before. I remember decades ago when Ohel didn't say this explicitly, but always, you know, hesitated as they said, you know what, we really got to focus on New York because that's our main responsibility. Plus, of course, the state government was demanding that you take care of the New York City and New York State children. Now, whether whether that's the case officially or not, Ohel feels, feels a responsibility to help out anywhere on the globe when an episode occurs or when a community is in need. When you develop the expertise of counseling and dealing with trauma and, and problems, then you're called upon in some severe situations. You have to help communities who don't know how to deal with it, children who are afraid to go outside anymore because they've seen the house next door burn down. Right. Um, and, and years ago, as we said, years ago when, when we were children, um, the parents said, just, just move on in life. And now we realize that, that there are some deep problems that have to be addressed and addressed by the professionals. Yeah. Besi- besides some major core schools here in the New York tri-state area that have sought our help and that we will be going to help in the next few weeks, um, we are about to enter the world uh, at the request of B'nai Akiva schools of Toronto. And I don't mind saying this uh, you know, online. I think it's fairly uh, welcomed by them that uh, OHEL will be working um, up in Toronto with, uh, with uh, a couple of schools up there that have, uh, will be contracting with us to help them with their uh, school-based services and pre-trauma uh, in terms of their teens wow. and, and what they're seeing up And there. that means sending some of your experts up there. Absolutely. On Dr. a regular basis, Dr. frankly. Norm, Dr. Norman Blumenthal right. and his team, absolutely. All right, the dinner is this coming Sunday night. A word about the honorees. What's it been like working with people like uh, Meridian Capital Group and all the wonderful folks that you are honoring it. Well, we'll speak about Susan and David in a minute, but I remind everybody that Sippy and Stuart Nussbaum are on the list of honorees, Judith Goldberg Ness and Dr. Seth Ness. We mentioned Apple Bank, and Steve Bush is going to be accepting the Kaylee Community Impact Award. We'll speak about David in a minute, but what about the other honorees? Well, these these are leaders in a lot of different ways. Sometimes sometimes the honorees are quiet leaders right. on what they've done, which not not everyone knows and what they're their their thought process and what they've built even from their families or the help they've given to communities or their direction to to help the services and ohel and and sponsor people and and create shabbatonim and and uh um the 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 honorees are are amazing um meridian capital i can say that uh that uh, uh ralph hertzker is a really a leader his own uh, past history of, of what he's done to help so many people um, his 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 uh, just whole direction of of understanding what Elhel does. Um, I, I don't want to give too much away because <laughs> you'll hear about it Sunday. You got to come to the dinner. <laughs> and as you said, you know, year after year. But you will guarantee us that these are very well deserving people. That's well, for sure. well well deserving. And you know, it, it, there there are so many. I'm not knocking other dinners, but there are so many dinners that people just stand someone up who wrote a check who doesn't really stand for 
what's behind it and the support they give uh, to so many in the Jewish community. These are real. All, these are all tremendous leaders. And there's a reason why you get so many people at this dinner to the envy of so many other organizations because, again, like I said earlier, people find it very inspiring. They get this one-hour update or whatever length of time it is. They get this one-hour update during the program about what OHEL is doing and how they're moving forward, and it's hard not to be impressed. Speaking of impressed, uh, you've had the opportunity all these years to work with David Mandel, and he and his wife are being recognized this coming Sunday night because of all these years of service. You know, is some people say it's unusual these days for someone to stay this length of time that David has with the organization. You would probably argue it's been a big plus for the organization. Am I right? Yes. yes. I, as, <laughs> as I say, we keep saying at the meetings, um, the, the, for this first 25 years is, is wonderful. Uh, it's, it's not only 25 years, but um, David, is, is, David and Susan are tremendous leaders. Um, and um, I can tell you that uh, a lot of what David does is really encourage and inspire other people. Uh, he listens to what people have to say. He pushes the board to think out of the box. Well, um, it's not its not a lazy organization that just muddles along from day to day. Uh, David really challenges the people on the board to say, what else can we do? What can you help me with? What do you want to go after? What support do you think we can get? Uh, how do we put together a new program and back it properly? And who's in the team together? So its its uh, it, it, when, when you come to meetings, um, you don't sit back and relax. You're, you're, you're sitting forward and, and being challenged on what can be accomplished. We always refer to the OL board as a very active board. You would say David gets part of the credit for that. Extremely active. And one of the things that, that I know has been a, a key po- point of the way uh, board meetings are led is David makes sure to bring in someone, whether it's a client, whether it's a parent, whether it's a program director, or usually it's a client um, of someone we serve right. at every board meeting to give the board firsthand the feel and the touch of who we're helping and, and how we can help and challenge them to tell us what we can do better. Robert? So, so uh, to Jay's point, two things. Uh, the proliferation of a younger generation coming onto the board, which I'd love, I know Jay wants to discuss, right. but Jay's comment about a testimonial, a client, a parent, someone coming in to talk to us at the last board meeting, <clears throat> Julie, Julie's a foster, is a prolific foster child of OHEL. And she was moving from home to home to home. Not easy. Not easy. She's now married. She had a baby. Wow. She, came, she came to speak at the board meeting and to, and to say her thanks. And someone asked her a question about what it was like moving from home to home as a child. I mean, we all have homes. Thank God. Most of us have homes. She didn't have a home. And she said, you know, people used to say to me, boy, you must feel like a black sheep. And she said, no, I feel like a magical unicorn. That's how I get through my day. What an attitude. Is that unbelievable? What an attitude. That was her comment. <laughs> that was her comment. Unbelievable. And I'll never forget it. I've, I've written it down, and I'm going to use it, and I've asked her permission to use it. I'm not a black sheep. I got through life by thinking I'm a magical unicorn. I can get through anything. I can get through anything. And guess what? She sat there, and we celebrated her at the board meeting. It was a simcha. It was a real simcha. She'll be featured in one of the videos uh, that evening on Sunday night. Um, so Julie gave us the quote of a lifetime. And, you know, just yesterday we, we added a, a brand new board member, a 35-year-old female from Great Neck. Um, I don't want to announce the name yet, but, um, b- 
but uh, as per Jay and, and, and certainly David's vision for the organization, we need to get leaner, meaner, and younger. 100%. Are there, I mean, there are a lot of opportunities out there for young people to be involved in Jewish Correct. organizations. Correct. Uh, you'd like to see the good ones and the superstars come to OHEL and make a real difference. Is there a way to, I don't know, is it different than when you were in your 20s and 30s? You know, I mean, I would assume it was even back then you had this, you know, uh, initiation to Jewish organizational work and a desire to get involved. Is it the same out there now? Are there a lot of young people who, if given the right direction, will get involved and will really work hard to help grow organizations? It's, it's as you and I know, it, the world is a lot different now. Right. Um, you know, we used to think back... Um, 20, 30, 40 years ago, and the truth is we had time. Right. We did have more time. We had time to come home and just hang out, whether it's watching something, reading something, we had time. We have no time now. No one has time. Um, you, can't, you can't find someone who is, quote, unquote, successful or that you want on a board that has the time to serve. Right. You want the people that don't have a minute but say, you know what, I'm going to take the time because I realize how important this is. Um, we, we need leaders. We need people who are not afraid to say, you know what, this is more important than one or two other things I have to do. And I have to push those aside to make time because otherwise, who will? Are there younger people that you sit with on the board that you say to yourself, I could see 10, 15 years from now this person making a real impact on the leadership of this organization? Yes, we are, we are bringing in, we are bringing, we added two great board members um, last couple of months. Um, uh, in reality, they came to meeting. They came to the first meeting. were really overwhelmed. I can imagine. At the kinds of presentations. Must have been blown away. What was going on. <laughs> see the number of people who attend the meeting. Right. And the quality of those people. These are leaders in the Jewish community already who are attending the board meetings. And these people are making the time. And it inspires people. Uh, these are we have, we have a tremendous group of of people that we consider future leaders. They're they're current leaders already. We have David Bresher, Ari Youngrice, Yoni Leifer, Jack Jaffa, and Ed Rubin. These these are people that in the last few years have made such a change in not only OHEL but in other organizations they're involved with, um, the, and, and many of them involved in several organizations. Right. That's the time. That's the commitment. That's their their effort to realize that the Jewish community needs people who they may not consider themselves leaders, but they are. Jay Kestenbaum and Robert Katz are here. By the way, on the subject of, you know, age groups and attracting the young, I get the impression when I'm there every year on that Sunday night that you have a very good mix. You have plenty of people who are veterans of this, but you seem to have a lot that are young and anxious to be involved, even just as supporters and attendees. It looks like the the OHEL dinner to me does not seem like, you know, a 50-year dinner that's only attracting those that have been involved 50 years. It seems like there's always fresh blood coming up and being involved in it. Nachum, if you only have the people who either know someone or have a family or know someone in their family has been touched by one of OHEL's services, yep. we would fill Madison Square Garden very easily. That's true. It's, uh, it's a lot of it is uh, quietly done, but That's uh, true. but everyone knows someone has touched someone, and even just the Camp Cayley um, atmosphere and the people who have heard about the camp or have visited. I mean, That's been, true. At that by this neighborhood is not one of the major OHEL neighborhoods, and even here we could put together a hundred people that are affected by what goes on 
courtesy of the amazing people. Well, you home. are an absolute oh hell neighborhood right. here on the Lower East Side, Correct. with the Lower East but, Side but home, not nearly with as the way you welcome all the guys from the from our home here. Much appreciated, but I'm saying in terms of numbers, obviously other in neighborhoods. Fact, maybe I think we'd like to honor you guys next year. <laughs> Thank you, Kayla. I'll I know no- that's all you need. <laughs> I'll note. I'll note that. Yeah. <laughs> and lastly, I must say, and I guess Robert gets the credit for this. Uh, I I've, I've never seen this before. Uh, when you go to ohelfamily.org, when you go to the website and you click on the gala information, which is coming Sunday night, you put together a completely separate website that gives you the videos, that gives you the honorees, that gives you the dinner journal as it's being updated, which, I, again, I mean, I know organizations have done th- stuff similar to this, but this looks like, to me, the most comprehensive actual gala site that I've ever seen. Thank you. And, of course, we have a wonderful um, uh uh, staff, Miriam Weiss, my, our director of development, and and uh, Marissa, and uh, our senior, our our chief information officer, Michael Hoffman, and his team. Look, we, we work at this. We work hard at it. Um, um, like we said, times are changing, right. and and you know, at at the OL dinner itself, the journal will no longer be, you know, a five hundred page book sitting on the table. It will be on a tablet in front of you, as as other organizations are now starting to do. But we're loading incredible content onto those tablets. I mean, it, you know, besides the the ads, the bios about the organization, uh, uh, um, benching if you need to leave early is going to be loaded onto the dinner tablet. But uh, the the point of the matter is, you know, David Mandel said to us the other day, he said to the team, <clears throat> "I have to get used to the quiet. I'm not used to the quiet." And now we understood right away what he was saying. We were, you know, some of some of the people who hadn't heard him before were wondering what he meant by it. What do you mean it's quiet? It's very busy. And he was talking about the phones ringing. Right. How the phones used to ring off the hook. Right. And and those of us who lived through the 80s right. and the 90s and phones ringing off the hook understood what he meant. Right. He can't get used to the quiet. Right. He can't get used to the fact that people are so effectively going online, yep. making their reservations, yep. putting in their pledges, putting in their donations, putting in and, and and writing their ads, and boom, that's it. You know, operators are standing by ready to take your call <laughs> simply no longer exist. Uh, it just doesn't exist. I don't even know if we should give out a phone number for information. <laughs> no, please do. <laughs> by all means, give out a phone number for information if, uh, if you can. If we even included it on the information here, right? <laughs> yeah, 718-972-9338. There you go. 718-972-9338. If your parents have a rotary phone, just ask them how to use it, okay? And there, and there will be a human being answering yes. that phone. A yes. live human yes. being answering the phone. But, but by all means, yeah, the website is fully equipped now. Thank God, it's very functional. And I mean, you could put your dinner journal ad in through the website. You could do it all. Oh right? yeah, and if you really have nothing to do, like Jay said, there are people far and few between. But if if Baruch Hashem, right. you know, you, you want and you want to scroll through the dinner journal and see how right. many times you know your name is mentioned or your friend's name is mentioned, and you, you know you you could do that and you could get an idea of what people are saying. But but the truth of the matter is, and Jay knows this. I mean, the CEO of a of a massive company. Uh, Jay, this applies to nonprofit work as well, and especially to the type of younger people that we bring on board. Who do you give the the work to? Who always gets the work? The busy people. To the busiest people you know. <laughs> That's right. Right. It's always like that. By the way, folks, not only everything that we just mentioned is on the Gala website, even parking information uh, so that you know. There's a coupon. Right. People, there's a coupon. There's right a there. coupon. It used to be you called the office. No. Right no. Wait for it in the mail. No, none of that no. this time. Folks. Oh, House 50th Annual Gala honors 
guests of honor, Meridian Capital Group, and Susan and David Mandel, Tippi and Stuart Nussbaum, Judith Goldberg Ness, and Dr. Seth Ness, Apple Bank with the Kaylee Community Impact Award uh, being presented to and being accepted by Steve Bush, the president and CEO. And all of this is happening on Sunday night in New York City. Uh, and everyone out there is encouraged to be there. Uh, the dinner is happening at the New York Marriott Marquis. You can go to the web. You can email gala at olfamily.org, gala at olfamily.org. I'm telling you, when you go to the website, olfamily.org, click on the gala uh, banner because you'll be taken to a website that makes this all so easy. Uh, oh, and I see on the, um, yeah, here it is on the on the homepage of the OHEL annual gala uh, page. The uh, journal is there, right there in the upper left corner for you to view. Dinner is called Giant Leaps Taken, Bold Steps Forward. As Robert has told us and Jay confirmed for us this morning, it is a unique presentation that you will not want to miss. They will not make a liar of Nahum Siegel when he says every single year that you're going to be inspired by this dinner like no other dinner. We are guaranteeing inspiration, Mr. Kestenbaum. For sure. Absolutely, Nachum. <laughs> it really is going to be something, I'm sure. Uh, it's, it's amazing <laughs> that Jay gets to sit here with us. You know, you had you had Moish Hellman for so many years, joined yeah. by Mel Zachter, and Moish becomes now ombudsman and president emeritus, and Jay steps in in his shoes. Working and, with Mel. Working together with Mel, yeah. hand in hand. And you know what? I know, I know Jay's got his eyes on the future leaders and who's next. Um, you know, after Mel and after him, and that's the way it's got to work. The succession planning is critical to the success of any organization, much less a Jewish nonprofit. The next 50 years, everybody. Jay, thank you. We'll see you Sunday night. Thank you, Nachum. Robert, thank you as well. And we will wrap up with that Natanel Hirschdick selection, Kol Hanishama, that we introduced to you as a tribute to Ohel and Camp Kaylee. And I remind you, go to ohelfamily.org, click on the banner for the gala. You'll see an amazing website. And you could dial a phone number if you wish, 718-972-9338, 718-972-9338. This is JM in the AM.
something different. But the reality is, look at what you have, because there's so much beauty in what you have.
JM in the AM. Miss Ameach is a selection from Shlaimi Gertner here at JM in the AM. Before that, Natanel Hershtig with the uh, Kol Haneshama that was uh, dedicated to Camp Cayley. And our friends at Ohel as they get set for this coming Sunday night's uh, big dinner. Uh, new music alert, Benny Friedman tomorrow. Benny Friedman tomorrow here at JM in the AM. It's a new music alert Wednesday. We will... Uh, we will uh, Facebook Live it, so you'll be able to hear it around the world, obviously, through NSN. You'll be able to see it around the world through Facebook Live. And obviously, uh, both will be uh, <laughs> will be preserved in archive form forever and ever. So you can I mean, so many more of our listeners now are literally never tuning in live and just listening and watching on archives. It's unbelievable. Uh, we get so much anecdotal uh, information about that, so... That you'll have an opportunity to do that tomorrow when Benny Friedman visits JM in the AM. Simple as that. Uh, Dr. Jeffrey Gorak is with us live via telephone. He's the Libby Clapperman Professor of Jewish History at Yeshiva University, um, former chair of the Academic Council of the American Jewish Historical Society. He has served as associate editor of American Jewish History, the leading academic journal in the field. He is the author of many, many books. In fact, during this conversation, I'm actually asking what book number this is. He is author, thank God, of many, many books. Tomorrow night, he speaks at Stern College on the topic of his brand new book. The book is entitled Parkchester, A Bronx Tale of Race and Ethnicity. And I will add, as I always do, that Dr. Gorak is an amazing mentor of mine who's... Um, inspiration for all these years i am uh, very much indebted to him for dr jeffrey gorak welcome back to jm in the am good morning it's always a pleasure to be on your show and uh, i see you less as a student today as a colleague as a friend and uh, you know i'm very proud of all the work you've been doing for the jewish community over these many years and it's nice to age together <laughs> I, just I just passed my 70th birthday and uh I'm looking forward to doing more books. This happens to be my 22nd book that I've either written or edited. And uh, in many respects, this book is different from the other books that I wrote. So let's talk about that when you get a chance. Oh, but believe me, I'll, we're going to talk about all of this. I I'm just astounded by that number. For those of us who are frustrated authors and can't complete their first book, what advice do you have? How do you get 22 books to come out during a career? You know, this is what I do. This is, this is my job, and I, I work uh, six days a week, and I think about it seven days a week, and uh, <laughs> I'm very privileged. You know, there's a, there's a linkage of one book to the next, and I always have ideas to do something uh, different. And uh, I've been very fortunate to be at a school at Yeshiva, frankly, where I've been encouraged to work specifically in my field of American Jewish history. You know, Nahum, there are hundreds of professors around the country who teach in Jewish studies departments, and they teach in all sorts of subjects. At the Bernard Revel Graduate School, where I've been privileged to teach for 43 years, 43 years, um, I've taught American Jewish history, and uh, I resonate to what my students say to me, and it always inspires me to do different things. And uh, so I feel, I feel very fortunate to have been at Yeshiva, and to do this work over the course of the years, even though I've taught elsewhere, and uh, my experience has been diverse. Uh, and uh, again, I've been very fortunate to do my work. So people ask me, why do you write these books? And I say, 
this is what I do. This is my profession. But you still haven't given that piece of advice I'm looking for. There's, there are many frustrated authors in this audience who feel they have the idea or could sit down and produce something noteworthy when it comes to books. Any one piece uh, of advice you know, give them? Just work. Just work. Feel inspired. Feel that what you are writing uh, is important and then sit down and do your work. Work work is the greatest antidote to being quiet, that's for sure. And we'll get to your new book in a second, but one last thing on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it very often or, or not very often that you will complete the work on a chapter or a book and have a tremendous desire but inability because of publishing deadlines to change something? I'm, I'm always writing drafts and rewriting. One of the things that I do to encourage myself, to give myself a certain degree of inspiration, is that I try, to, I try to research every day, and I try to write every day, and then revise, so that at the end of the day I can say to myself, well, you've accomplished something. And then now I wake up the next morning, and I read what I did, and I said, did I write that? <laughs> and, and then I revise, and then I revise. Amazing. So, uh, I love it, it. It's, it's an ongoing process, and thank God I've been at it for many years, and uh, I'm hopeful of doing some more books as uh, as time passes, you know, a again, lo- one book leads to the next. Yeah, I hear that. You know, a lot of people don't realize the role that the Bronx played in modern Jewish history. A lot of people speak about this neighborhood, and you know that the Lower East Side. A lot of people speak about Williamsburg. A lot of people speak about other areas of the five boroughs, and of course, other areas uh, in, in Jersey, etc. A lot of people don't realize what kind of Jewish presence there was, not just in Parkchester, but in the Bronx in general. In 1948, there were more Jews in the Bronx than Midianat Israel. Okay. Just to give you one sense uh, of how big the, the Bronx was. And the Bronx had multiple neighborhoods over the course of time. Jewish presence in the Bronx dates back really to the 1880s. And then in the 1920s, when the Grand Concourse really grows, it becomes the epicenter of Jewish life. And Parkchester comes into existence in the 1940s, a very different type of community. And today, uh, there's a significant community where I live in Riverdale, right. which really becomes a Jewish neighborhood in the 1970s. In fact, uh, before World War II, there were a number of Jewish neighborhoods in the city, uh, a number of neighborhoods in the city that were off limits to Jews. And Riverdale was one of them. In, in the Tony Fieldston section of uh, of Riverdale was off-limits to Jews, just like Forest Hills was off-limits to Jews back in the interwar period. So it's a multiple community history, namely the Bronx, and each neighborhood has its own distinctiveness, that's for sure. Those those of us who have a casual knowledge of the Bronx basically you know, point to the Grand Concourse area and Pelham Parkway. Those are, I think those are the two that the casual observer would know had Jewish presences. Well, you know, before before World War II, the South Bronx, the, the Hunts Point section of uh, of the Bronx was heavily Jewish. Uh, Van Cortlandt Crest, north of Van Cortlandt Park, was home to co-ops that were built by the labor unions in the 20s before the Great Depression. They were hotbeds of radicalism. In fact, the Bronx before World War II had the cachet of being more radical uh, socialist some communists in the, in, the, uh, in the East Bronx, as opposed to Williamsburg, which was heavily Orthodox, and uh, Borough Park, which, of course, had a, a Zionist orientation. 
So each community, each neighborhood, and each borough had a very distinctive personality, although I argued in one of my other books that the people who live in these neighborhoods can be differentiated between activists who want to change the world, like the Zionists in Borough Park, and people who are just interested in living a day-to-day life and uh, surviving in America, advancing in America. So that's one of the dialectics that took place in these neighborhoods. So you're right, Bronx is very big. And uh, again, 1948, there were more Jews there than in Midianite Israel, and, just to give you a sense of how big the Bronx was. And the total neighborhoods? I mean, like the Lower East Side we look at as one neighborhood. How many different neighborhoods do you think had Jewish presences in the Bronx back in the early part of the 20th century? At least seven or eight neighborhoods. Wow. You have Morrisania, you had uh, Hunts Point, you had the Hunts, Grand Concourse. Is, is Hunts Point officially south of Yankee Stadium? Like, that's really, I can't believe there was a Jewish community there. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, the, the great radical thinker, uh, Irving Howe, for example, grew up in that neighborhood. It was, and uh, uh, in fact, Jewish presence in, uh, in the Bronx dates back to when some German-American Jews fleeing the arrival of East European Jews not only go up to Harlem, which was the site of one of my earlier books, but also go over into the, um, into the Bronx. So there's been, a, again, a large-scale Jewish presence uh, all over the Bronx. And geogra- uh, geographically, Parkchester is where? Is it in the center of the Bronx? Where is it? If, if you crawl or drive the Cross Bronx Expressway mm-hmm. out to Queens, in the East Bronx, on the way to the Whitestone of Throgsnet Bridge, you will see uh, 151 buildings on 129 acres of land called Parkchester. That's what it was, is right there. Which was a... There was nothing there until 1940. It was vacant land owned by the Catholic Church. And then Metropolitan Life Insurance Corporation bought that area. And in the course of two years, from 1940 to 1942, they built 151 buildings on 129 acres of land. And those of you who know Manhattan, Parkchester was an older sister community to um, Stuyvesant Town, which is just north of the Lower East Side, which right. was built in 1943, 44. The difference was that Parkchester was on vacant land. Um, Stuyvesant Town, slum clearance, uh, cleared out that area and made way for this planned community owned by Metropolitan Life Insurance Corporation. They had a lot of money. They wanted to invest in real estate. They got a sweetheart deal from the New York State Assembly, and they built Parkchester, uh, a planned new community. So people who are moving into that neighborhood are starting fresh. They're moving into the area. And I argue that this was an alternative to moving to suburbia, which, again, begins more after World War II. Very very similar to Co-op Village right here on the Lower East Side. That's correct. When those buildings were built, it kept people in the area. Right, right. Although those co-ops on the Lower East Side predate Parkchester. But the interesting thing about Parkchester was it was a development that started fresh. And by the way, you, sh- you should never ask a par- say to a Parkchesterite that you lived in a project, right. you lived in a private development. Right. And that was the difference, because projects were on the other side of the track. Right. Literal- literally, <laughs> the, what's now the number six train that started in Parkchester down to Yorkville. I'm laughing. Uh, I'm, I'm laughing because I learned that lesson 30 years ago, and I moved in here right. <laughs> about that's, the that's sensitivity. The, yeah. There's a difference. And, and by the way, projects and there's issues today in terms of our city in terms of projects. You know, denote minority communities as opposed to a private development 
that Metropolitan Life right. Insurance Corporation was very, very, very proud of in building Parkchester. Uh, Dr. Jeffrey Gorak is with us. The book is called Parkchester, A Bronx Tale of Race and Ethnicity. He speaks tomorrow night, 7 p.m. at Stern College. We'll get those details a little later on. Um, so now if you if you characterize Borough Park the way you did, and I think the older people in our audience certainly agree with you, some of the younger people may find that hard to believe, frankly, a characterization of Zionist. Uh, and, of course, Williamsburg, uh, you know, completely developing as an Orthodox community even back then. How would you classify Parkchester religiously? Yes, okay. So this is an interesting community in terms of its Jewishness. I should say at the outset that what is different about this book for me as a historian is that this is the first book that I've written where Jews are not in the center of the story. Uh. In other words, this is not so much an internal Jewish history of Jewish life, although we'll talk about that in a moment, but rather this is a community where Jews shared the spotlight with Italian-Americans, large-scale Irish-Americans, white Protestants, and from the period of 1940 to 1968, it was totally, almost totally segregated. No African-Americans, Latinos were allowed in the neighborhood. This was a lily-white community, so much so that people growing up in the neighborhood, they even realized to a great extent that they're living in a, ra- a racially segregated neighborhood. Today, Parkchester is multicultural. It is African-American, Latino, Bangladeshi. There are six uh, mosques in the neighborhood. There are almost no Jews left in Parkchester. Jews were not driven out of Parkchester. They aged out of Parkchester, and they moved to, uh, moved to other neighborhoods. But for Jewish people moving into Parkchester, because you asked about the Jewishness right. of Parkchester, what's different about Parkchester as opposed to the Grand Concourse or Borough Park, you know what? If you lived on the Grand Concourse and you never went to a synagogue, you were living in a Jewish neighborhood. Right. In other words, in one of my books, I interviewed the late, great Dolph Shays. You know, I have a bit of a sports background, too. Right. Okay? <laughs> and Dolph Shays told me that he lived four blocks west of Grand Concourse. And I said to him, Dolph, did you ever go to shul? Were you ever bar mitzvah? He said there were some great synagogues uh, on the Grand Concourse, like the Concourse Center of Israel. I never went to synagogue. But I felt that I was in a Jewish neighborhood because there were Jewish stores, Jewish signages, the butcher shops, the bakeries, the candy store, uh, uh, clothing stores that had Jewish, Yiddish and Hebrew names. It was a Jewish neighborhood. When you move to Parkchester, the way Parkchester was developed, there was no Jewishness explicitly on the street. Mm-hmm. So you had, you had to develop a Jewish community. And in fact, I argue in the book, and in some op-ed pieces that I've written subsequently, that either explicitly or implicitly, Jews, uniquely for New York, are not moving into a Jewish neighborhood. They're moving into a mixed neighborhood. And it's a great challenge for religious leaders to build a Jewish community. It's almost like moving to a suburban locale, but even more so because suburban locales had JCCs, YMHAs, and the like. So Jews, most of these Jews are opting to live among Gentiles. It's, there are no Jewish buildings. If you, you got an apartment in Parkchester and you looked at the, uh, the mailboxes, you would see names of all different ethnic groups. So it's a different challenge, a different story. It's not about Jewishness so much. It's about how Jews are living with their Gentile, with their white Gentile neighbors. And then again, 
when the African-Americans are finally allowed in in the late 1960s, uh, the neighborhood changes uh, to a great extent. Can you go back for a second to Grand Concourse? When you say Jewish neighborhood, you mean Grand Concourse from what street to what street? Well, the Grand Concourse runs from really the 140s up to uh, uh, 200 and to Mashlu Parkway. If you can visualize the map, yeah. a, T, a T of the Bronx, the, the cross section is Mashlu Parkway North. And the Grand Concourse runs all the way down, really down to, almost down to the um, the Third Avenue Bridge. But right. the Jewish section of of uh, the Grand Concourse in its heyday was basically from where Yankee Stadium is, a little bit west of the Grand Concourse, 161st Street, the Great Concourse Plaza Hotel. And uh, I've done some tours of the Bronx. Uh, many of these synagogues are now churches. Uh, you can see some of these great large Orthodox synagogues and conservative synagogues that are on either side of the Grand Concourse up to, let's say, 200th Street. So it's a two-mile, two 40 blocks. It was two, 40 uh, blocks. Two, that whole yeah, area was Jewish. It was predominantly, predominantly Jewish, although Dov Shea says, you know, it was a totally Jewish neighborhood. It's not true. Only seven out of ten people were Jewish because I looked at, at the census statistics. Right. But the fact is you had a sense when you live in the Grand Concourse or on Eastern Parkway that you're living in a totally Jewish neighborhood, although that wasn't true. When you live in Parkchester, you realized day one that perhaps your parents had chosen to live in a neighborhood where they were generally accepted, and they're choosing to live in a mixed neighborhood, a very different experience uh, for Jews. Did general acceptance mean that a, a Jewish kid could get along and integrate socially with all the different ethnic groups in Parkchester or only a limited number of them? That, that, that's that's the, one of the great challenges of the book. You know, I, I interviewed a gentleman named Peter Quinn, who's an Irish-American historian, and he grew up in Parkchester, and he was a speechwriter for Governor Mario Cuomo. And he wrote a memoir of uh, living in Parkchester in the 50s and 60s. And he said, uh, it's a great line, which has informed the love of my work. He said, the Jews and the Irish live separately together. Mm -hmm. In other words, he said, in earlier periods of American Jewish history in the 20th century, the truth of the matter is the Irish and the Jews did not get along. They were constantly in conflict. They fought over jobs, over housing, over politics. I'll tell you a funny story. I don't know if it's funny, but about 10 years ago, I was asked to speak at the Irish consulate in New York about Irish-Jewish relations and how Jews and the Irish got along so well. And I was hard, you know, I was hard-pressed to find the example of where <laughs> Jews and the Irish got along. <laughs> and then I remembered, interestingly, that between 1945 and 48, uh, due to the activities of William O'Dwyer, the Irish longshoremen helped the Irgun uh, smuggle guns into into Eretz Israel before the uh, the rise of the state of Israel because the Jews and the Irish had one thing in common, and that is they both hated the British. Right. Okay, so the it's a predominantly Irish neighborhood, and I argue in the book that you don't have a father Coghlanite type of atmosphere in Parkchester, and yet there were limits to the degree to which Jews and Irish got along. We didn't date them. They didn't date us. We played in the playgrounds with them. There were fights in the playgrounds. 
Uh, there was playing together in the playgrounds. Being a sports guy was interested in that. But when the day was done, Jews and the Irish and the Italians went their separate ways. There was no organized anti-Semitism against Jews. You know, uh, when you do this work, you think that you're the only fellow on the block doing the work. So it turns out that there's a historian who's doing work on the history of youth gangs in the Bronx (laughs) in the 40s and 50s. Your listeners, of course, know that Leonard Bernstein's uh, West Side Story, Mm -hmm. which was supposed to be East Side Story originally about an Italian and Jewish interaction, was based upon the prevalence of street gangs during this time period. Uh, In Parkchester, so he sent me a map of where the gangs were that preyed upon Jews in the Bronx. And there's one area where there are almost no gangs, and that's in Parkchester. And that's because, interestingly, it was a controlled community. There were actually Parkchester cops. They weren't they didn't carry guns, but they monitored the community. And by the way, if you stepped out of line and you climbed over the fence to play basketball before the park opened, or you rode your bike on the sidewalk, excuse me, or you pick flowers, your parents got a note from the Parkchester cops, <laughs> and you got enough notes, uh, they tried to throw the family out. And if you were um, uh, too many times arrested, so to speak, by the Parkchester cops, and you got married and you wanted an apartment, they had a rap sheet on you. So, look, this is a story when you have verification of the story by Jews and Gentiles, when six people tell you the same story, it has right. some legitimacy to that, okay? So that's in the book. So the Parkchester cops monitored it. I'm not saying that the Irish and Jews love one another, but there's a difference between hatred and what I say is getting along, getting along one with the other, uh, well, which takes place in Parkchester. Was there any noteworthy Orthodox synagogue in Parkchester or noteworthy uh, Orthodox religious leader there? Well, there are but two synagogues in Parkchester. You would not be surprised that there's no reformed congregation in Parkchester because uh, these, are East, these are children and grandchildren of East European Jews, right. so reformed Judaism has no cachet. So there are two synagogues, not within Parkchester, but in what was called Interfaith Row on the outside of Parkchester. So this Metropolitan Life Insurance Corporation, pretty cynical. They didn't want church and synagogues within Parkchester in its white heyday wow. because quote, the wrong element might come to pray, not in the synagogues, but in the church. And that's referencing African-Americans and Latinos. So there are two synagogues. There's the Temple Emmanuel of Parkchester, and then there's Young Israel of Parkchester. Now, the rank and file of these two synagogues, and this gets us into the history of orthodoxy and conservatism right after World War II. Most of the families I would say 95% of the families who go to the Orthodox synagogue or the conservative synagogue, their religious values are pretty much the same. They're sending their kids to public schools. They're not uh, Shomri Shabbat. They show up certainly for Yomim no Re'im, but that's the rank and file. Now, within the young Israel of Parkchester, you have where the majority of the youngsters and the families are not particularly observant. Again, this is a 1950s phenomenon, 1960s phenomenon. We see this in suburbia that time. There were a handful of families 
who sent their sons and in some cases their daughters, more than sons and more than daughters, to Jewish day schools, to yeshivas. Closest one would be? Closest one would be, geographically? The closest one would be the Salanta Yeshiva, which today is the SAR Academy. Right. The problem with Salanta back then, it was a very different school than SAR today, which is, my kids went to SAR, which is avant-garde and a wonderful school. Frankly, Salanta was a little bit weak on the secular side. Right. The, that frustrated the, the parents. Frustrated the parents who wanted this degree of integration. Right. Where what was called the Young Israel Park Chester Whiz Kids. Who's the rabbi of the Young Israel Park Chester? Anybody I rabbi, heard of? Rabbi Moshe Aryeh Schwartz, Maurice L. Schwartz, was the rabbi there for many years, for mm. uh, maybe 30 years in that congregation. But the, the kids who went to day school, the boys, more boys than girls, got on the subway and uh, went down to Ramaz. Right. Some for eight years. And then some of the boys after eighth grade went to uh, TA or MTA, as we used to call it, when there was a BTA, which is no longer in existence. And the girls stayed there for 12 years. But these were the exceptions to the rule. And um, you didn't ask me why I wrote about Parkchester. I reveal in the last two pages of the book something that is significant, that I grew up in Parkchester. I thought you grew up in the Grand Concourse. No, I grew, I grew up in I I'm one of the, I was one of those privileged. Uh, we, they were called whiz kids, the boys who were sent to Ramaz, and I always make the joke that I was at Ramaz on an athletic scholarship, which isn't totally true. Okay, <laughs> you know I came from a, uh, a lower middle class family, as did all these people, and we got on the subway. And we went down to Ramaz, in my case, for 12 years, in some cases, eight years. And we were trained in, uh, uh, within our synagogue by two outstanding lay leaders, influenced by Rabbi Schwartz. And, um, you know, uh, we, we, we young Israel Parchester people feel very, very uh, sympathetic and warm about our experiences. And we say that per capita, we produced a, a cadre, mostly of young men, who went on to do some nice things in the Jewish community. One of them became a rabbi in, for 40 years in New Jersey. Um, one of my colleagues at Rebel Graduate School is a Parkchesterite. His brother teach, uh, teaches philosophy at Hebrew University. My own brother was a, was a synagogue president in New Jersey. One of our alumni was the originator, the executive producer of a Chok Tsum which was the Hebrew Sesame Street. Mm. And it all came out of the young Israel of Parkchester. But I have to emphasize that the conservative and the orthodox rank and file were pretty much the same in terms of their levels of observance. Right. And many of them move into parches and say, we have no interest in uh, synagogue life, whether it is orthodox or conservative. So it's a snapshot, and this is not so much in the book, but I think it's of interest to our particular audience uh, on your show to talk about the Jewishness of Parkchester and how it was very different. And I also want to say, this is the 50s and 60s. You know, we're living, thank God, in an era where so many kids, so many kids go to day school. That wasn't the case back then. Right. And I also have to say that there was a gender d- differentiation of families who were scrimped and saved to send their kids to day school or yeshivas more often than not sent their sons 
and not their daughters that they school. Although, there's one other note. There was an experience in our school. I can't give you the date, but this is in the pre-Orthodox feminist era. It must have been in the early 1970s that at a youth Shabbos, one of our young women who went to Ramaz walked out of, with the permission of the rabbi, walked out of the women's section, walked up to the bima, and gave a Devar Torah. And then she walked back to her section. And there was no grumbling. There was no <laughs> opposition. It just happened. So it's an interesting sidelight to the story. But again, the book, which is designed not so much to talk about the internal life of Jews, uh, has this dimension that is I think, very important to our audience, and uh, that's one of the things I'll be talking about tomorrow night uh, to our home crowd, our home crowd uh, here at, uh, at Stern College. So, and, the, and, and hence the, uh, the subtitle, A Bronx Tale of Race and Ethnicity, because it is the Jewish experience within a neighborhood that had multiple races and ethnicities. That's correct. Um, I, I, want to, yeah, I want to say something else. One of the things I'm most proud of as far as this book is concerned is that— uh, Fifteen years ago, when our synagogue closed, I prevailed upon the last president of our synagogue, our synagogue, Young Israel Parkchester, who, by the way, sits next to me in Riverdale at the Hebrew Institute of Riverdale. Uh, I prevailed upon to let me save the records of the school. Right. So with the help of our dean of libraries, we rented a U-Haul van. I found three strong students that said, fellas, we're going on a road trip. <laughs> we went to park just we went to the shore and we opened the door and I said, Okay guys, take everything and we looted the shul of all the records which are safely ensconced in our archive at Yeshiva University, not knowing that I would write about this community. And so when I turned to do this this uh this book, <laughs> I have no life, okay? I read synagogue bulletins. I read through the synagogue bulletins I saved with these students' help. And, you know, to maintain a shul, uh, the first prerequisite is to have a daily, daily minyan. Right. So you see, over the course of time, the rabbi asking for volunteers for the minyan, mm-hmm. and then begging for a minyan, and then finally Rabbi Schwartz leaves the shul because he says, a shul without a minyan is not really a shul anymore. Very, right. very sad story, but it comes out of, it comes out of those records, which are uh, which I preserved. And I also, I also <laughs> had a student who did a senior thesis. He looked at Rabbi Schwartz's sermons and studied his sermons and told us what issues occupied a, uh, an Orthodox rabbi in the 1950s and 1960s. So there's when, a twin effect on everything. When you were born, your parents lived in Parkchester? Yes. And father, so, so, you've only, fa- so you've only lived in Parkchester and Riverdale? Uh, my experience in Parkchester is from 1949 to 1974. My parents were among the first residents in Parkchester. Uh, they moved in in 1940. My father's occupation was a firefighter for the longest time, as you know. Right. That was the number one occupation of Parkchesterites, Jew and Gentile. They wanted uh, firefighters, policemen, postmen. They wanted this type of person with what they called solid family values. I interviewed, I spoke to, I read memoirs of Jews and Gentiles. To get into Parkchester, a social worker came to your home and investigated whether you had a proper family. 
with white gloves to see if there was any dust on the mantle, whatever it may, may be. So my parents felt very fortunate. They felt they were chosen people to get into Parkchester. And we lived there. I lived there until we were married in 1974. And then after a year, I had a fellowship at, in Cincinnati. My wife and I moved to Riverdale along, this is also interesting, I believe, along with five or six other Parkchester alumni of the Young Israel who wanted to daven together in a new neighborhood. What? My students will understand this is like a Lonsmanshop connection. We right. want to be together, and some of us have remained in that synagogue, uh, the Hebrew Institute of Riverdale, for the last uh, almost 40 years. Was there, so, was there a cantor at the Young Israel Park, Chester? There was no, there was no, it's a Young Israel shul. It was a quiet Young Israel shul, by the way. You could hear a pin drop in that shul. And on the high holidays, but, who led the services? We had our own ballet to filah. There was one gentleman who was was very involved in training us. Now the Gurak boys couldn't couldn't sing for beans, okay? So we weren't ever given the chance to uh, to daven for the Ahmed on Yomim Noraim, but we got a chance at youth Shabbatones right. to daven to give to give the Torah, which who, Rabbi which Rabbi Schwartz ghost wrote for, wrote for us. You know, who prepared you for your bar mitzvah? Well. Um, I was prepared by um, uh, two gentlemen, uh, one named Kelly Winkler, Kalman Winkler, uh, Julius Horowitz. They helped me prepare me for my bar mitzvah. I did not do a particularly good job. <laughs> I, I, I still think that laning is, is the, the single most difficult skill that uh, our faith has, be that as it may. But there was no, there was no official cantor. It was a young Israel synagogue. You know, young right. Israel synagogues have, unfortunately, a negative cachet in many areas of being noisy synagogues. Right. In our synagogue, you could hear a pin drop. Amazing. And you, did, you didn't sit with your parent or your father. You sat, you sat in a special boys section. Right. And Mr. Winkler, a blessed person, sadly he's gone. All these people, like my folks, are all long gone, would walk up and down the aisle, and if you spoke, I'll use a sports metaphor, <laughs> he would give you a sunny lift and glare, which would melt you into butter. He'd yellow, so was, he'd, he'd yellow card you. <laughs> he, he would yellow card you, Ab- absolutely. And the book but, is, you know, I'm sorry, yeah. No, 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 it was, it was a wonderful place. <laughs> it, was, it was tough love. I have to say with a certain degree of, the, degree of pride that the young men and a few of the young women who came out of that um, uh, synagogue uh, ended up showing uh, each in their own way uh, a very special commitment to to Judaism I, I, and uh, yeah. made I'll, a special synagogue. I'm, you know? w- I'm way over time here, Dr. Gorak. How long of a walk from your house to the Young Israel of Parkchester? Around the corner. Oh, I, around, that's, that's around pretty the good. Corner. The book is called Parkchester, A Bronx Tale of Race and Ethnicity. Where can one obtain the book? It's available through NYU Press and, of course, on Amazon. And if you come to my lecture tomorrow night at Stern College, there'll be books uh, on sale for me to sign. And I hope that some of my students and some of my alumni, who I remember fondly, will take the chance to come down to Stern College. Uh, it should be a, a marvelous evening. And I'm told not only will there be people from Parkchester, Jewish people from Parkchester, but there'll be non-Jewish people there, too. So there's been a great interest within the Catholic community as well. 
which fits me fine because this is a book about inter-ethnic and interracial relations. 7 p.m. tomorrow night at Stern College. Where do people go? They just uh, head to the uh, main uh, main desk? It's at the Yagoda Commons on 32nd Street corner of Lexington Avenue, 7 p.m., and it should be an interesting evening. Dr. Gorak, always a pl- I could do this with you all day, as you know. Always a pleasure. Mazal tov on your 22nd book. Unbelievable. Thank you very much. Lots of luck and success in everything you do. I am very proud of you. Thank you so much, and God bless you. Parkchester, a Bronx tale of race and ethnicity, uh, written by Dr. Jeffrey Gorak. Get it, everybody. It's, there's some amazing parts to this book, and as you heard from this conversation, uh, you could learn a tremendous amount about a Jewish community uh, of a, a very important era of the 20th century by reading this book, Parkchester, A Bronx Tale of Race and Ethnicity. More coming up. You're listening to a, um, what is today? Tuesday morning broadcast at JM in the AM. Shekh Lev 
J.M. in the A.M. with Ohad. Tuesday morning broadcast here at J.M. in the A.M. My thanks to Dr. Gurak. Uh, don't forget our friends at Art Scroll have the brand new book entitled Kids Cooking with Chef Shiri. Kids Cooking with Chef Shiri. It's uh, written by Ephraim Harari. It's available now. If you use the promo code radio, you get 15% off plus free shipping. 15% off plus free shipping. Use the promo code radio at artscroll.com. Use the promo code radio at artscroll.com. Also, for those of you who want to sponsor part or all of a JMAM broadcast, if you want to sponsor part or all of a JMAM broadcast, go to uh, fjbunity.org. Again, that's fjbunity.org. And um, you could sponsor part or all of a broadcast. All the details are there if you click on sponsorship opportunities. Again, you will see all the details there. A um, couple of other things I wanted to mention regarding our community calendar. Let's see here for a second. Told you earlier about the Nefesh Benefesh event that's going on today in Queens. An Aliyah workshop for retirees that's happening at 11 a.m. in Fresh Meadows. Information nbn.org.il. Um... New Springville Jewish Center has Joey Newcomb, who was here yesterday, this coming Saturday night at 120 Saxon Avenue on Staten Island, beginning at 8 p.m. Check that out. Tomatora Flatbush Saturday night uh, has invited um, Rabbi Dr. Jacob J. Schachter, starting at 8.15 at the Tomatora Flatbush on Coney Island Avenue. The Rav and the Rebbe, Brisk Meets Chabad. That'll be his topic. This coming Saturday night. Um, this coming Sunday, there'll be a swabbing and testing at the Young Israel of Woodmere um, seeking type O. They're looking for type O. If you don't know your blood type, they will have type testing on the spot. A swabbing and testing at the Young Israel of Woodmere. Um, and that is specifically to save the life of a woman who needs a kidney. So there'll be a swabbing and testing on the of Woodmere between 7 and 7 this coming Sunday. Uh, information, you can uh, contact Renewal at Renewal.org. The OU 7th International Jewish Community Fair with 57 communities from North America and 6 communities from Israel this coming Sunday, November the 24th, between noon and 6 at the Metropolitan Pavilion. That's located at 125 West 18th Street in New York City. 
Information, OU.org slash fair, OU.org slash fair. The Atid Society with stand-up comedy of Modi to benefit the Kushner schools this coming Sunday to performance at 7.30, a dinner reception for Atid Society members at 6 p.m. Um, at the Dr. Morris Epstein Bernard Stein Auditorium at the Joseph Kushner Hebrew Academy on South Orange Avenue in Livingston. This is the event shared by Batsheva and Murray Halpern. Get out there and enjoy in New Jersey this Sunday night, 862-437-8001, 862-437-8001 for information about that. And I think that's that. Oh, the Ohel Gala, of course. We spoke about Ohel earlier. When Jay Kestenbaum and Robert Katz are with us, the Ohel Gala is Sunday night, Marriott Marquis in New York City. Now, here is the latest from the Jerusalem Post. Now, remember, remember, tomorrow is the deadline. I don't know why we kept saying Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is not the deadline to form a government. Tomorrow is the deadline to form a government. And, um... And according to Jerusalem Post... Um, Prime Minister Netanyahu and Blue and White Leader Gans will hold what is seen as a dramatic meeting at 10 p.m. tonight. That's 3 p.m. Eastern time. 10 p.m. tonight, 26 hours before Gans's mandate to form a government runs out. Blue and White sources confirm that this will be the first political meeting between the two since October 27th. Um... They did meet over security issues, but the Prime Minister's military secretary was president and political issues were not discussed. The meeting apparently came at the request of Avigdor Lieberman, who's been mediating between the two men in hopes of brokering a national unity government. Netanyahu met with Lieberman for the second time in three days on Tuesday morning at the Prime Minister's office. Khan Radio reported Tuesday morning that in order to draw Lieberman into the government without giving him what he wants on matters of religion and state, Netanyahu would offer him ministries and Knesset committees that have been controlled by United Torah Judaism and Shas. In a sign of improving ties between Netanyahu and Lieberman, Israel Beitenu postponed the advancement of a bill that would have made it easier to split the Likud faction. Netanyahu and the Likud's coalition negotiating team will meet with Rivlin at 7.15 tonight before Netanyahu meets with Gans. President Rivlin has been pushing for a unity government and has let it be known that he opposes Gans forming a minority government by the Wednesday midnight deadline. So that's it. Midnight tomorrow night, 5 p.m. Eastern time, is the deadline. That's it. And uh, we shall see what happens. Tonight is the um, is the meeting uh, in regard to uh, the possible deal that Gans and Netanyahu will be making here at the last minute. Very interesting. Brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web, and AlchemSegal.com, and the AlchemSegal Network, and of course, any beloved NSNF. Wraps up an amazing Tuesday here at JM and the M. Benny Friedman tomorrow morning. Benny Friedman tomorrow morning. We'll Facebook Live. We'll, of course, be on Around the World. We'll take your comments via the app. Benny Friedman live in studio tomorrow morning. None of this pre-recorded stuff. Live tomorrow morning. Benny Friedman here at JM and the AM. Make sure to be tuned in. Have a fabulous Tuesday. JM Rewind is next with a whole bunch of amazing interviews 
from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, from last Wednesday's uh, inspiring show from the JCC of Greater Pittsburgh. That's coming up next. Till tomorrow, Nachum Single reminding you, remember to past, live the present, and trust the future. Yeah.